Hi, welcome to Lighthouse Vineyard Church. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to know more about us, feel free to visit us online at lighthousevineyard.church. Enjoy the message. But you actually, I mean, you walked away from not only the church, but downsized your living and your home and opened it up to total strangers. Yeah. I, I just want to make sure our audience understands it was a radical departure from a conventional lifestyle. I mean, how difficult was that to, to go from essentially being a fairly comfortable upper middle class person to living as close to the streets as you've ended up living? It was so easy. I, I mean, it was hard to make the decision uh-huh. because it was so strange to people. And we had so much resistance from church people. You, you really? Know? Church people? <laughs> exactly. Difficult? My goodness. Yeah. It, it's almost like the people who didn't believe in God understood our decision better <laughs> than the church did. Not surprised. Yes, exactly. But my wife and I, as we went down this journey, I mean, th- that's the thing. that The Bible says if you would lose your life, you're going to find it. Mm. And so once you make the difficult decisions, once you allow people into your house, once you start giving to the poor, and you see the result of it. I mean, to be in Africa and see these kids eating and, you know, with clothes and vitamins and getting educated, it just brings so much life to you, where where I just had never been happier. Hello, everyone. My name is Clint Schwartz. I'm the lead pastor here at Lighthouse. Thanks for being here today. And if you're joining us over at the Beacon, thanks for being here today as well. And if you're joining us online, uh, put something in the chat. Let us know that you're there. So anybody know who that was? Yeah. Who was it? Francis Chan. Francis Chan. He's a well-known author and speaker. Actually, one of my favorite uh, authors and speakers. Um, he's written books such as Crazy Love, Forgotten God, and then a marriage book, You and Me Forever. But in that interview, he was talking about how in 2010, he made the crazy decision to step down as lead pastor of a mega church in Southern California that he had started, Cornerstone Community Church, and to downsize his life and really live close to the streets and help the poor. That was a radical change that he made. But even more than that, in uh, February earlier of this year, he made the decision to risk everything and move to Hong Kong and help the poor in uh, one of the poorest regions of Hong Kong. So he moved his whole family there to minister to them. Now, Francis Chan has risked everything for the sake of Christ. And I would say that those Poor people in Southern California and those down and out in Hong Kong are certainly glad that he did, right? I mean, he risked it all. He risked his security. He risked his financial stability. He risked his safety and his family's safety, all for the sake of Christ. And I would say that we need more people like that in our world, more people like Francis Chan who are willing to risk everything for Jesus. And I use his story to introduce our series. We're in the middle of a series called Risk Takers, Finding Our Courage in an Unpredictable World. And it takes courage to make a, to take a risk like Francis Chan did. And uh, to be honest, we live in a pretty unpredictable world, right? November 3rd, do we have any idea what's going to happen? No, we don't. And based on the results of that election, we're going to have two very different Americas, won't we? 
So it's very unpredictable. We just don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen in 2020, right? We live in an unpredictable world, and we need courage as followers of Jesus to face it. We need that. And I believe that as we study stories of people like Francis Chan, or specifically, we're going to talk about uh, a person in the Bible. There are many people in the Bible who risked everything for their faith. But as we study their stories, I believe that their courage will rub off on us. Because I think, I believe, I really do believe that courage is contagious. So today, we're going to be talking about one of those courageous risk takers in the Bible. His name is Paul. And you guys have probably heard of Paul. Paul's written much of the New Testament. But Paul risked everything for his faith. He risked everything for his faith. So we're going to study him today. Now, you can turn to your Bibles if you'd like. We're going to be in the book of Acts. We're actually going to be in four different chapters in the book of Acts today. So you need to be able to flip those pages quickly. We're not going to read all all of those chapters, but we're going to start with chapter 5, verse 17. That's kind of where the story of Paul begins. Now, Paul is known as Saul through this first section. So we're going to refer to him as Saul. But let me set up the context. So when we get into Acts, we've just finished Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four accounts of Jesus's life. And then the early disciples meet together. It's the day of Pentecost. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. We studied that in our earlier series. And then a crazy thing starts happening is that the disciples start praying for the sick and they start getting healed. So just like when Jesus was here, And so all of a sudden, you have these crowds surrounding around the disciples, and they're healing them, and they're preaching about Jesus. Now, this makes somebody upset. You can kind of guess who it is, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, the same people who killed Jesus, they thought they had silenced this whole thing, that Jesus is the Messiah, and uh, and it's not working very well. It's not working very well. So on verse 17, chapter 5, it says, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So that's what the apostles did. They were arrested Most likely, they were going to be tried and and killed for their faith, much like Jesus was. But an angel comes and breaks them out of jail, and they just go out, and they start preaching some more. So during this time, though, persecution continues. So they're trying to arrest the disciples. They're trying to find anything wrong with them that they can. And so they they get a couple of false witnesses who make accusations against Stephen. Stephen is one of the early followers of Jesus. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, has this incredible speech about the history of Israel and how Jesus is the Messiah. And at the very end of the speech, he calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees for killing Jesus. And then he um, says that he has a vision and actually sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Now, to them, that's blasphemy. So, In Acts chapter 7, this is their response. Verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, at Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. 
Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is the first mention of Saul. He's kind of the, the hero of our story today, but he doesn't start out as a hero. Saul starts out as a pretty bad guy. We don't really know why they laid their coats at the feet of Saul. We know why they took them off, right? Because they wanted to hurl these stones and they wanted to throw them at Stephen and kill Stephen. But early uh, accounts are that most likely they laid the feet, their coats at the feet of Saul because he was well-respected, he was trusted, and it might have been him who made the decision that Stephen should be killed. So, this is our first mention of Saul. So then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned, for, mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Saul, and he is zealous about the historical law um, of Judaism. And he believed that Jesus was a heretic. And he was trained as a Pharisee. And so he went after every single person who called themselves a Christian, who was a follower of the way. You know, Jesus called himself I am the way, the truth, and life. You know, so followers of the way were these Christians, and he went after them. And he arrested them, men and women. I mean, he had no uh, regard for men or women. He just arrested them all, put them in jail. And when it came time to um, vote against, you know, vote for their life or for, vote against it, he voted against them every time. So he was having people killed. Now, he became kind of a famous and powerful person in the Jewish circles, Right? Um, he was uh, uh, the person who kind of did all of the dirty work for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was kind of like a mafia hitman. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated these Christians, but, but Saul was the one who actually went out there and did everything, okay? Now, this persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and so the Christians in Jerusalem all fled. You know, Saul was killing, arresting everyone who called themselves a Christian, except for the apostles, the, the, the 12 apostles that says that they remained in Jerusalem. Just side note, I wondered about that. I'm like, well, why did they remain? And, and why weren't they arrested? And I'm guessing it's because they couldn't arrest them. If they arrested them, they got broken out of jail, you know, and there was just the power of God over them the whole time. But anyway, so, so Saul is driving everybody else out of Jerusalem and they're ending up in these other cities, and as you know, what does a Christian do? A Christian is supposed to talk about our faith. So that's what these early Christians do. They start evangelizing these other communities. Well, Saul hears about that. And he's like, well, we got to do something about that. So this is verse chapter, uh, here we go, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who, who, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So that's his plan. Give me letters. Give me authority. I'm going to go to this town up in Damascus where I heard there's some Christians. All right? And I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to arrest them. We'll bring them back to Jerusalem, and we'll try them and have them killed. I mean, he's zealous 
for the law. Damascus is 200 miles north of Jerusalem. So, I mean, it is a five to seven day journey to walk there, all right? And that's which is how they usually traveled during that time. So he is zealous for the way. Now, on his way to Jerusalem or to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus. This is verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So can you imagine that? I mean, Saul's on his self-righteous high horse, though he's probably walking, and he's going to Damascus with his other you know, partners in crime. And Jesus himself shows up and says, all right, Saul, I've had enough. And he actually blinds him. So Saul is now blinded, led by the hand into Damascus. And while he's there, he's like seeking God. He's like, I don't know. This is crazy. What just happened? So he starts praying and fasting food and water for the next three days. So then another character in the story is introduced. His name is Ananias. And I love the story of Ananias because Ananias is a resident of Damascus whom Paul, Saul, Went, went to, he went to Damascus to arrest people like Ananias, all right? So then Ananias shows up in the story. This is in um, verse 10. Verse 10, we'll pick this up. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now we'll stop there for a second. God himself is telling Ananias what to do. And I relate to Ananias because Ananias is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you sure about this? This is, this is Saul. Do you know who that is? So this is his response. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. You ever done that before? God tells you to do something. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God, I don't think so. I mean, those people, you want me to be nice to my neighbors? Do you know how mean they've been to me? Right? Or God says, I want you to pray for that person, you know, at Walmart. Whoa, 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 God. There's people around. Don't you see those people around? How many times do we do the same thing that Ananias did? God tells us to do something, and then we proceed to educate God on what he must not know. You must not understand my circumstances, right? I know I've done that. And then the Lord's response is classic. He says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, go. Does your, in your Bible, does it have an exclamation mark after that? I think it's more like, go! <laughs> what do you, you know, I mean, it's like, go! This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. See, in this instance, 
two things. One is God listens to Ananias, but he tells him to do the same thing, which is typically the case, right? God rarely changes his mind. He's like, no, I, I, I told you to go. But in this case, he actually explains it to him. He says, let me tell you, Saul, he's going to do a lot. He's going to minister to the Gentiles. Many times we don't know why God is telling us to do something. We don't know. We're not always going to get that explanation, but we still need to go. God has a bigger picture mindset than we do. Ananias had no idea that Saul was going to become Paul and he's going to write half the New Testament and he was going to... He, you know, Ananias had no idea. He had no idea that Saul was going to convert to Christianity. In his perspective, he just saw what he could see, and he's like, whoa, that looks dangerous. That looks like a risk to me. And God says, go, go. So Ananias does, praise God. <laughs> what would have happened if Ananias wouldn't have gone? I mean, Saul already had visions that a man named Ananias was going to come. I guess Jesus would have gone and found another Ananias in town, you know, and said, all right, it's your turn. All right, you're going to go. I killed the other one, you know. Um, no, I don't think that would have been the case. But, but Ananias went, knocks on the door. Hey, I'm, I'm here to pray for Saul from Tarsus, the guy here to kill me, you know. And, uh, and he's blind, and he prays for him, and it says, Scripture says, like, scales fell off of his eyes, and he began to see. And not only did he begin to see physically, Saul began to see spiritually because of a risk that Ananias took. And Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. And he, he hangs out with the disciples, and he's, he's like baptized. I mean, he's like a real Christian, and he, and he learns about this Jesus who fulfilled the law. Now, again, Saul understood the law. He understood the prophecies. He had studied them his whole life. Jesus opened up his mind to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the prophecies. So Saul could have just went on his merry way, but he didn't. He starts telling people about this. So this is verse 20. Chapter 9, it says, At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I wish we could end the story there. Saul becomes a follower of Jesus he knows the, the law, he knows the prophets, and he starts convincing everyone that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's not the way the story ends with Saul, right? That's really just the beginning of persecution. So verse 20, 23, it says, after many days, just a few days, really, we're not talking years, we're talking a few days. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him to kill Saul. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And then he went back to Jerusalem. Saul converts to Christianity 
is the riskiest thing he ever could do. And it cost him dearly, cost him dearly. We're gonna read about that a little bit more today. So the title of today's message is Paul, the Suffering Servant. And I believe we can apply a few lessons from his life to our life. And I'm really hoping that we can, because I think this is, Saul's story is really applicable to, I think, where we're at today and where we're going to be in the, in the weeks and months and years to come. But first, let me pray. And then I'll give you a couple of points. So God, man, I just thank you for calling Saul out. Lord, I, today I'm just grateful for Ananias that he said yes, that he trusted you. And Lord, that you used him to help Saul be converted as a follower of Jesus. And I'm thank you for Saul's life and everything that he did to further Christianity, both during that time, but his impact has been, man, it's huge for the last 2,000 years as well. So Lord, I pray that today you would give me your words to speak and that you would give us ears to hear. And Holy Spirit, be in this place. Man, be in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple lessons that I think we can learn from Paul. I'm going to start calling him Paul now. Paul's risky life. First of all, risking for Jesus will cost us some comfort. Will cost us some comfort. And I, I originally had in my notes, risking for Jesus may cost us some comfort, should, possibly will. And I've decided after reading this scripture, I was just like, it will. Guys, following Jesus will be costly. It's going to cost us some comfort. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul suffered incredibly for the name of Jesus. So he was a chosen son. He was trained by the Pharisee Gamaliel, who was by name, he was, a, he was a famous Pharisee during that time. He was an up and coming. You know, he was most likely going to be on the religious council. Who knows, he might have made it to high priest. But he had it all set. Everything was set for him. He was well respected. But he gave up all of that, his comfortable life, to be a follower of Jesus. He became a criminal in the eyes of those who used to respect him. People often tried to kill him. Often. Anyone here ever had someone try to kill you? I mean, I haven't. I don't know anyone like that. But that has to be an awful feeling to know that somebody wants to kill you. He didn't have just one or two people. He had whole towns that tried to kill him. At one point, because he was so hated... He had a group of 40 plus men vowing not to eat or drink until they had killed him. This is in verse uh, 12 of Acts chapter 23. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Talk about a hated man. What changed? He was loved. He was well-respected, probably by those same 40 men. And, and 
And now they wanted, I mean, they, they vowed not to eat or drink until they killed him. Now, they didn't succeed at that time. So I'm guessing they either starved to death or they ate later on. Um, but can you imagine that? How hated he was to have people, let's do this. I'm not going to eat or drink until this guy is dead. Well, he suffered much. He suffered much. What changed was he became a follower of Jesus, right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul lists the many ways that he has suffered. And I'm guessing this wasn't the full list, but this is a pretty extensive list. Uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 24 says, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. By the way, the reason it's called 40 lashes minus one was because they believed that if they whipped you 40 times, it would kill a man. So they did 39 because they wanted you just on the edge of death. So this happened to him five times. Can you imagine the person who was going to do the whipping? Just think about this. Take your shirt off, take his shirt off. And they look and there are the scars from the four other times that he'd been whipped. I mean, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. This is because he was a follower of Jesus, by the way. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. That time he was stoned by a whole city. They dragged him out and God like raised him from the dead. And then he ran away. No, he didn't run away. He went right back into the city and finished preaching. Just incredible. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Everywhere he went, he was in danger. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, he actually adds to the bottom of that list. Man, and it tears me up because I love the church and I'm worried about them. He adds that to being beaten with rods, to being stoned. Paul suffered dearly, dearly for his faith. So here's a question for us to ask ourselves today. What does my faith in Jesus cost me? Has it cost you anything? Because reality is, and Jesus gives us so much. When we follow him, many times he cleans up our life, right? Frees us from sin addictions. He restores our soul. He brings hope. Brings the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all those great things. But guys, let me just submit to you. Following Jesus isn't all about what we get, all the benefits and the blessings that we get. We should be suffering a little for Jesus. It should cost us something to be a follower of Jesus. So what, is, what does it cost you? What has it cost you? Jesus said this in John 15. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 
Following Jesus is risky, and it should cost us something. Here's, here's a couple of areas I was just thinking through. How do we practically apply that in America today? So I came up with um, five areas that I think our faith might cost us. The first one is friends. I just want you guys to know, you can fill this in on your handout if you want. Following Jesus will probably cost us some friendships. I mean, if you really are a follower of Jesus, you're probably not going to do the things that you used to do. And so there's going to be people in your life who are like, you know, I liked it when you would party with me. I'm not so sure I want to hang out with you anymore. And let me just submit to you, it's okay. It's okay if following Jesus costs you some friends. Now, even beyond that, there may be some friends in your life that following Jesus should cost you. These are the friends who are not good for you. It could be relationships. It could be just friendships. And you're like, every time I'm with them, I don't like who I am. I don't, I don't influence them. They influence me. Well, just so you guys know, it's okay. It's okay if following Jesus costs you that friendship. Because following Jesus is costly. Number two is hobbies. Sometimes following Jesus is going to cost us a hobby. Because I don't know about you, but I can get into a, a hobby pretty, pretty high, start spending all my energy, my time. I prioritize. I can prioritize it over my family, over my church, over serving at the church. And so I'm not saying all hobbies, but we know, or if, if you don't know, ask your friends or your spouse. They'll let you know if a hobby is too important to you. But it, it could cost you a hobby. Number three is a job. You're like, oh, no, man, this is, this is America. We work anywhere we want as long as we make a lot of money, right? Do whatever we want. There may be jobs. I mean, I know there are jobs out there, but you may have a job that gets in the way of following Jesus, it may be just the schedule, like, oh, they scheduled me to work on Sundays and I can't be part of a home group and I can't, you know, come to classes at the church or any of those things. If it's doing that, I would, let me just submit to you, if you struggle with following Jesus because of the schedule of your job, there are other jobs out there that will honor your faith. There are. And so it may cost you a job. Also, you may have a job that requires you to be someone who you don't like, right? I mean, you know those kind of jobs, right? I mean, like the culture is just so bad and you just can't even function in that job unless you're cussing or participating in coarse joking, all those kinds of things. Let me just submit to you, it's, it's okay if you walk away from that, job, from that job for the sake of Christ. And if you do that, God will take care of you. But it'll... It may be costly. You may go from a salary here to a salary there. It's okay. Look at Paul. Look what following Jesus costs Paul. It's okay. Number four is just sleep. I say this mostly for my young adults and students. <laughs> but following Jesus might mean I have to get up early so I can read my Bible and pray for my family or stay up late. It may cost us some sleep. And then the last one is money. Jesus calls us to be generous 
And we, we just need to be generous. So as followers of Jesus, it should cost us financially, period, period. Here's your last feeling on this point. If my faith isn't costly, then maybe I need to be more risky. You know, if, if, if your answer to the original question, what does my faith in Jesus cost me is, I, I don't know. Maybe it's time to take a few more risks. Take your Bible with you to work, you know, or read it at a coffee shop. When you're out to eat or you're getting ready to eat, bow your head and pray. Pray out loud. <laughs> you know, if it starts to cost you some dignity or people start to make fun of you, you're in good company. You're in good company, right? So the first lesson we can learn from Paul's risky life is that risking for Jesus will cost us some comfort. The second one is that God has a silver lining in every dark cloud. So we look back at Paul's life. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament, 13 books. Four of those he wrote while he was in prison in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul was arrested and jailed and chained. I mean, they, when we say chained, he was actually chained with chains on his wrists and on his ankles. He suffered dearly for following Jesus. But while he was in confinement during that time, he didn't just complain, right? He wrote four books of the New Testament. He found the good in his difficult situation, the silver lining in his dark clouds. And then he writes about it in Philippians chapter one. One of the books that he wrote in prison, he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul saw the benefit to being in prison. He says, hey, since I'm in prison, I've gotten to tell everybody about Jesus. You know, they all know why I'm here. And even more so, all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus outside of prison, they've gotten more bold. And they're taking up my position and sharing the gospel while they have freedom. He saw that it was a benefit. Now, I don't think that Paul's goal in life was to end up in prison, right? Um, but I know that when he chose to follow Jesus, he knew what the risks were. He knew that that probably was going to happen to him one day. But he still had a positive attitude through the whole thing. He wrote the book of Romans, and in Romans 8.28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, he knew God is working it out for good. He didn't say, in all things, God is working it out for my good. He said he's working out for good for those who are in Christ. Our challenge, our, just, our difficult situation that we may be going through, it may have nothing to do with us, but it's for the good of those around us. And we can know that. We can trust that God is working it out for good somewhere, somehow. He's going to work it out. Well, if 2020 has taught us anything, right? 
has taught us that we can't control our circumstances. You know, when the world hands us lemons, we make lemonade. You guys never heard that? Yeah, we make lemonade. So we have had all of these difficult situations handed to us. We're locked at home. We've changed jobs. We can't go to the restaurants we wanted to go to. We, people have gotten sick around us. We have all these things. But there is good in the midst of this, right? Does anyone believe that? Yeah. Yeah, Mia, Mia's had a few lemons handed to her this past year. Yeah, and God can work it out for good, no matter what. In the book of Philippians, you know, Paul wrote that in prison, and he knew that he had a death sentence on him, that he was most likely going to be killed. And this is what he says. He says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a win-win. If I, if I live, I'm going to follow Jesus and tell people about Jesus. That's, whew, that's great. But if I die, I get to go spend time with my Jesus. He actually goes on to say, man, I'm, I'm torn between the two. Man, it's better for me to go. Man, it is so much better for me to go. But it's better for you all if I stay. Ugh. So I've, I'm convinced I'll stay and I'll continue to, to tell you and disciple you. But Paul saw his circumstances as win-win, even though it was costing him an incredible amount. I love the way that Switchfoot says this in a song, one of my favorite bands. He says, we are, they, we are crooked souls trying to stay up straight, dry eyes in the pouring rain. Well, the shadow proves the sunshine. The shadow proves the sunshine. And the idea here is that shadows are dark and dreary and ominous, Right? And sometimes we go, oh, look at the shadows. There's shadows all around me. You can't have a shadow without a light source, right? Guys, 2020 has been dark and dreary and shadowy. It is our time to shine. Man, we are not to join in on all of the defeatist attitudes and the, oh, the election is coming. Oh, the racial tensions. Oh, there's going to be another toilet paper shortage. You know, I mean, all these things. <laughs> right? We can, it's easy to join in. But guys, that's the shadows. That's the darkness around us. We have an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus like never before. Paul understood that. Paul understood that. This is your last fill-in. The dark shadows around us allow the light to shine brighter within us. Man, let's, let's turn these lemons into lemonade. Let's make the most of our circumstances. Let's not be surprised when it costs us some comfort. You know, risking for Jesus is going to cost us. I'm going to turn the beacon over to Zach and invite Tony to come up here and lead us in a time of prayer. Scott, can you throw point number two up for me? Awesome. So God has a silver lining to every dark cloud. Who's felt like they've had a dark cloud over them all year? 
Nobody? It's been a great year, huh? <laughs> I think with, with what we face this year, it makes um, other things that we have faced even harder, just on top of what's going on. So as I was talking to a prayer team this morning, here's what came up. Someone here today is losing hope and they're ready to give up. I sense the Lord is saying that he's already working on that situation. says trust me take the risk and step into faith if you've got a situation that you're just ready to give up you don't know what to do anymore on top of what's going on in the world around us, and you just need help and you need prayer and you need God to step in for you. That's what we're going to pray for today. We're going to step out of our comfort zone and ask God to step in for us. So if that resonates with anyone, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray for you. If you're in a season where you just need God to comfort you, thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. I think it takes you out of your comfort zone to stand, doesn't it? To even say, hey, God, I need help. I don't want to give up. I know you're going to do this in your timing. I know you've got it under control. Let's step out in faith this morning. Do we have anybody else? God, we thank you because there's a silver lining every time there's a dark cloud. We thank you for being that silver lining for us. We thank you that we have the hope in you that you have got it under control, God, that you are working behind the scenes. Even when we don't see it and even when we don't feel it, God, we know that you're working. Pray, God, for 
those that stood up this morning. God, you know their situations. You know exactly what they're going through. We pray that you cover them with your love and your peace, God, and just reassure them that you've got it under control. Help us to trust in your timing. Help us to risk it all for you, God. Let's have everyone go ahead and stand and we'll close. So God, thank you for this timely message. Thank you for speaking to each of us individually, God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for showing us the example of Paul and how he risked it all for you, God. And even though life gave him lemons, he still made lemonade. And we ask for that in our lives. Be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's it for today's message. We hope we helped you know God more intimately. If you feel our ministry is helping you spiritually, feel free to find out more about us at lighthouseofvineyard.church. Thank you for being part of our family, and we will see you next time.